The time to do something is not when you're ready. The time to do something is when you're almost ready. Because if you wait until you're ready, you'll never do anything. Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Fionn Davis, an emergency doctor and expedition medic. And with me today, I've got Dr. Charlie Mize. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you. So glad to have you on the podcast. So uh, we'll launch straight into it. So Dr. Mize's background, he is working, well, has been working in Bhutan, Pakistan and the Himalayas regarding the setup of critical care retrieval service and expeditionary services throughout the region. Bear Badger is a physician-led team founded by Dr. Charles Mize and Dr. Michael Kellner. The service grew from work in the Himalaya, where Dr. Mize and Dr. Kellner created the first Bhutan Emergency Aeromedical Retrieval Service. This endeavour led to the creation of the Kingdom's Mountain Rescue Team and then to retrieval projects in other countries where Bear Badger has established rescue in austere environments. This has led on to Bear Badger supporting high-risk expeditions in challenging environments. Bear is the retrieval medicine arm of Bear Badger and operates a critical care retrieval systems across aeronautical and ground-based platforms. Badger represents the expeditionary medicine side of Bear Badger and consults around high altitude medicine and the provision of emergency care in austere settings, unable to be reached by helicopter. And joining us from Spain today, we have Charlie. So welcome to the podcast. And I hear the weather is a little bit better there than where I am currently. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. We'll launch straight into it. All right, my pleasure. Yeah, so that's right. So we we started out in Bhutan initially, and then gradually moved our operations elsewhere as uh, need and opportunity dictated. Great. So, could you maybe just start by giving us a short history of your training um, in qualifying as a doctor and then developing an interest in pre-hospital care? Sure. So I so there are different. I'm, I'm, I'm sure our, the listeners know that there are different platforms, different pathways rather, into emergency medicine. And it means very, very different things in different parts of the world based on uh, the training pathway. So in the United States, emergency medicine is a well-developed um, individual specialty. Uh, so I trained, you know, first as just general, general physician and then did an internship year. And then after that, did four years of training in emergency medicine specifically, and then did um, extra training in uh, like resuscitation. So not just cardiac arrest cases, but um, uh, like invasive surgical medical management of people who come to the emergency department critically ill. And um, and then from there, uh, spent a year or two teaching uh, as part of the Yale Emergency Medicine Residency Program, which I still which I'm still still involved, and then from there moved to uh, moved overseas, and just out of necessity began working more in the pre-hospital setting, and then over time just found my my career almost you know being split down the middle probably, at times, three fourths pre-hospital doing pre-hospital critical care and retrieval, and then at other times maybe one fourth that and three fourths you know in department emergency bay, resuscitation. You know, mechanical ventilation, critical care, things like that. Uh, 
um, yeah, so that's how that's, that was the, the, the initial qualifying process. Um, when I started overseas, it was initially with short-term projects in Southeast Asia. And then I had the opportunity to, to work in Bhutan initially for a year, but ended up being there for a few years um, and help the kingdom create their, like establish their pre-hospital care systems and develop their protocols and their training platforms and so on. And then eventually uh, was the founder of their pre-hospital critical care uh, air retrieval program. Um, and then largely thanks to the Kingdom of Bhutan, uh, the, the, the laws concerning how you bring in expertise and the strict requirements governing visas and so on uh, necessitated that in order for us to bring in really qualify people to help teach and uh, like bring our Bhutanese staff up to the level of quality that we really wanted. So that it could be entirely Bhutanese run. Um, we needed to form our own, our own, our own company basically to do this. And so that led to the creation of bear badger, uh, which allowed us to bring in all sorts of really brilliant people to help spearhead that initial program. And, and then that just grew into other opportunities in different countries. Um, you know, doing either consulting work or design work or uh, in some cases just like on-site clinical teaching and, and capacity building. Um, and then on the, you know, the Badger Arm, all sorts of really interesting projects. Initially, it was to help develop mountain rescue operations in places where it's not feasible to do air, airlifts or air rescues for whatever whatever the reason may be, um, to, you know, training for and providing for expeditionary support. But then it moved on to some sort of other, other interesting projects. Like one thing that we, we found ourselves doing a lot before the pandemic was high-risk cartography, which was kind of an interesting thing where we would go with a team of, 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 of people into austere locations to create uh, topographical maps and uh, basically map projections with grids to facilitate rescue operations. So that was, we had, we had a few really big projects doing that um, to facilitate mountain rescue work. You know, we received a, a grant from the Red Cross to do that, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how, yeah, that's kind of how, that's kind of how the operations kind of built. So to this day, we still do uh, quite a bit of the helicopter aviation consulting design, um, you know, uh, like platform building, that sort of thing. And then on the Badger side, the pandemic really, really kind of closed all that down. But then afterwards, you know, things have started to reopen again. And so um, we're in discussions of doing another, another mapping project. We really like those. It just seems to have something that we've, We've done, we've just happened to have done more of. Um, there's a lot of people in expeditionary support. It's just, there's, there's a lot of expeditions and there's a lot of like, like remote filming and there's a lot, there's like a big market for that. And there's also a lot of people who really want to be involved doing that. Um, and so we just found that to be a little bit less interesting. Of course, if there are people who really want to accompany expedition or want us to accompany an expedition, you know, we're, 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 more than happy to, but we find ourselves doing things that are a little bit more, um, uh, let's say, 
coming up with a, with a way of ensuring consistent medical care across a very long and treacherous evacuation program where you know you have a point of care for people who are going to be injured and you see, you see injuries or casualties pretty consistently. And so, you know, you anticipate that you're going to have a pretty regular stream of people that need to be moved across a certain amount of territory and how can you make those provisions. So like that sort of, that sort of operational work. And then of course, um, some of the, the, the cartographic program building for mountain rescue, not the actual, you know, the, on the boots on the ground part, but like the, what happens before that to facilitate that work and make it possible. So. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So is, are these places that have been mapped before, but you're creating specific maps for mountain rescue purposes? Um, either. So there are, you can, thanks to modern GPS, thanks to like the satellites, there are lots of places where you can get, um, you can get images of places that are very, very remote in a, like a Mercator projection, right? They're like, there are ways in which you can do that pretty easily. So um, the, the, the question is there are places where there might not be an official, um, official government map projection where the government won't, won't, won't have established say their own, their own map projection to suit their own populace or their own geography as well. And so they're just basically kind of borrowing a projection from some other country or some other state. And so what we do in those cases is we just uh, try to create something that is going to be more useful for local staff to very quickly and easily communicate with each other about the location of where important hazards are and possible landing sites for aircraft and um, routes for rescue and things of this nature. Yeah, cool. So, so kind of specific for the kind of rescue and healthcare community. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, trying to point out possible hazards of terrain, which aren't immediately noteworthy uh, on on like a satellite projection. And sometimes you can look at a satellite projection, and you can get a sense right away where you might have some hazards when you're trying to 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 scale some sort of uneven terrain or try to climb something. Um, but sometimes it's not so obvious until you're actually boots on the ground there. And so creating maps that actually really highlight those hazards and also show what places are safe, like what, what, what are the relative safety? Um, how do I say this better? Trying to, to name places where you could theoretically bring an aircraft of different power capacities and different airframes and et cetera under different weather conditions mm -hmm. and trying to map out like, okay, so under these conditions of density altitude, this might be a safe landing spot. And under these different conditions of density altitude and weather, whatever, like this site might be better and so on. But like laying out a map, laying out sort of a, a map that shows all these different characteristics so that if you have, whether it's a remote village or uh, a point, an evacuation point, or like a popular destination for mountaineering, you could very easily use this map just to help you guide your 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 risk stratification, your decision making for evacuations like that. And it sounds like local knowledge would be really helpful to that as well in terms of like conditions and sort of topography. Oh, it's essential. It's essential. I mean, in order to do one of these things, we typically have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on site, you know, 
with locals, like just like looking at the different routes, looking at what people have tried, um, getting a sense of where do the accidents happen usually? Oh, they happen there. Okay, so the nearest safe evacuation point is there. Here, right, and and like depending on depending on um, like when and how and for whom we're making these maps, it might be that like we would we would provide one, and then over the course of the year we would provide updates for it depending on the different season. Right, because there, it's 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 very possible that um, certain times of year, um, the the safety of certain locations because of wind conditions and heat and so on, just makes certain landing sites possible during certain seasons, others not. Certain types of terrain accessible during certain seasons, and others not, like this. So we would just have an updated one. Um, that's not always necessary. Sometimes it's just like a you know we just need it during a certain window time of year and these aren't perfect of course but the whole goal is to facilitate operations in austere environments for the purpose of um like patient access retrieval and the provision of 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 elite medical care that's the idea sounds like a really useful thing for like a mountain rescue team or anybody who's operating an expedition in the area who's trying to do some forward planning really useful resource and who who is mainly interested or or looking to get these get these maps provided for them we've had um we've had so far it's been um like private commercial interests and then a few a few governments we uh we were we've been approached by um some resort areas in the caucasus um, that are trying to like start, you know, trying to bring in people to do certain types of, you know, winter sports and all, but don't really have uh, a strong government backed evacuation program that want to start that. But also like, you know, they're doing their hell skiing and their sightseeing, but they don't, they don't have a lot of, you know, they have places that they can go to train people in mountain rescue operations, helicopter retrieval and so on. And there are times when we help with that aspect of the job separately. Um, but then they want to have like a robust plan for how to approach certain types of possible accidents, not just for, you know, like they're, they're like tourists, but say also for, for staff or for VIP events or things like this. So we've had that. And then we've had, um, some governments ask us to establish, to help establish like grids to facilitate their work to undertake evacuations from certain, certain population areas that are at, in high-risk areas, you know, high-risk for earthquake or for a natural disaster. And so, um, so they're, they're like, they're, they try to be ahead of the game. So if this happens, there's sort of like an idea for, you know, how they might initiate a, a rescue response and how and so on. Cool. Great. Um, and then I guess that links in really well with the other side of um, Bear Badger, which is sort of the aeromedical critical care retrieval side of things. So you've got that knowledge to sort of feed into that, um, the other side of the business. And you, you, so along with, along with that, you do teaching and provision of staff and training of staff, et cetera. Right. And sort of the right, right. work in helping countries get this set up. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, if, if, if there's a company that's looking to, uh, like modernize the provision of medical care on board aircraft or introduce critical care retrieval or take an ad hoc evacuation program and turn it into a more professional one 
that's what we have had a lot of experience doing from so from this kind yeah. of model was in Bhutan was it where that, that exactly exactly the, the thing that we try to do that I think distinguishes it from others who are who are all in the similar line of work is that our focus has been on um, either new companies or companies with like older airframes that wish to be able to do provide like elite care without high high expense because there's this notion that like oh because the helicopters are so expensive that means that like everything else should be like massively expensive and top of the line too but that's just not the case nor is it feasible for a lot of like low and low middle income countries right like i mean that might be feasible if they have like a private healthcare system but if you want to be able to do something for say like miller military operators right and you want to have a seamless transition of care what you don't want is to have the level of care go up during the transport and then when they get to the receiving hospital go down again so that's something you want to avoid um, and so the whole goal is to create a sustainable system that's also relatively low cost and being having a knowledge about like the different types of equipment, different ways you can solve problems where you can get equipment that might be like a generation or two behind what's what's current and like when you might want to splurge on things and when you might want to be more parsimonious with your equipment, things like this. And then, you know, the nuances of how we design the airframes, how we retrofit things um, and being very comfortable with older airframes, like some of the older bells that are used in, in certain parts of the world. You know, I've, we've actually, uh, we did, um, we did some medevac stuff on like Fred, like the old French Alouette airframes. I don't know if you're there. That's like out of like 10, 10 comic books. Have you ever seen like the, with the, the like the sort of glass bubble and like the, the like the, the lattice work, right? Cause those are really, really good. Uh, if you're trying to get to high altitude and very hot places. So, so it's interesting. So we've had a lot of experience in that sort of with that, with those sort of crews. Um, yeah, it sounds like you have to do a lot of adapting to the kind of existing infrastructure within country, the existing level of care, what equipment they've already got, what they need to spend money on, what they don't need to spend money on, and you kind of kind of can really tailor it to wherever you're asked to to consult, right? Right, and also the the goal the goal is to make it so that it is it's 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 viable, and I think that sometimes it's that you, I've seen too many times that. You'll have an operator that will have really nice equipment, but they'll have not given much thought to how they're going to refurbish and resupply the equipment they have, right? So if you're in a place where it's really hard to get parts, really hard to get parts for a Draeger, then, you know, maybe that's not something you should use. If like, if you have part of your, your Oxilog fail and you don't have any means to have resupply parts or it takes too long, then maybe that's a decision you should question, you know? If on the other hand you have like you you you're not worried about that, but like there's just it's you have a lot of difficulty um, like refilling your oxygen tanks or getting fresh tanks or uh, getting AV you know tanks that you're confident you know have been have received their hydrostatic testing. And if you go to some of these hospitals in like India and Nepal, you'll see oxygen cylinders that are like God knows how old, and who knows when they've been tested last. And like I, you know there aren't a lot of pilots who are super keen on taking cylinders like that up in the air. Right. And so you might have a situation where you're like, okay, what do we do? Are we going to bag this person the whole flight? You know, and if we're going to ventilate them, how's that going to work? You know, a lot of transport vents require a venturi mechanism to operate. Um, and to my knowledge, there's only, only one on the market that, that you can use without a supplemental, uh, like medical oxygen supply. So, you know, just all these little details that, that really help us facilitate the work of, of what, whether it's, 
commercial or military operators who want to create seamless evacuation without, you know, while raising the level of care at each step along the retrieval. Yeah, and a lot um, of that reads, reads across the sort of the expedition stuff as well, where, you know, there's no point bringing, you know, an ultrasound if your battery is going to fail in the cold or if you've got no power source that's going to be able to power that or if you've not got the expertise or the sort of ongoing... Or, yeah, or totally, but also, like, first principles, like, like if the ultrasounds can provide you information that's going to change what you're going to do in the field, then there's this, you know, and you to say nothing about whether or not you can support all the the supply chain operations infrastructure necessary to maintain that sort of equipment. But if you're not going to, let's you know, if you have personnel that aren't going to do anything differently, like they're not going to have the surgical equipment or the medicines or the life support equipment to actually change their initial provision of care based on the information they're getting, then there's no need to like bring those those device those like those medical those diagnostic devices like into the field. It's really important not to lose sight of that too, right? Like I mean, like we I think that sometimes in hospital-based medicine, we often lose sight of this notion of discriminatory versus non-discriminatory data, like information that changes our behavior versus information we use merely to prognosticate or to you know lend more certainty to a diagnosis, right? And when we're in austere environments, it just makes no sense to try to obtain information that's not going to have a direct impact on our actions, on our care plans. It really makes you rethink your diagnostics and what's actually useful and what's not, doesn't it? Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's, no, it's no good being able to have an ultrasound, do a fast scan, discover there's fluid in the belly. If you've not got a trauma center, you can get to. If you're in Antarctica or something like that, it's not really that helpful. But if you, if you can act on it appropriately, then it may be a useful thing to bring with you. But I think that's a lot of um, a lot of like expedition doctors all have had those dilemmas thinking about what equipment they want to be bringing with them and oxygen cylinders and the variability that you mentioned there between countries is one of the other like issues you come across. Mm. Now, there isn't there is sometimes you are going to be doing evacuations and you've got more than one possible site uh, of 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 receive of receiving you you have like you might have options for i could bring a patient to hospital a which is close by or b that's a little bit more further afield right so in cases like that where you're trying to make triage decisions in the field about whether i'm going to take a risk to go for a more difficult transport to go to place b versus place a okay maybe having diagnostic equipment to make that sort of risk assessment is useful even if you're not going to be doing the treatment in the field I like that's just an important thing to add on because if, for example, I knew that one place had had an operating theater and surgical capacity, one place didn't, but I knew that there was a hazard associated with that other transport, then I would really want to make sure that we were trying to accurately triage that need as best as possible, right? So yeah. that's fruit. That's fruitful. That's fruitful. Not In addition to like feeling to get to the hospital if you've not got you know information that's right right and the, the, the other thing too is there's like there's this there's this gilding of medicine like you know there was a time not that long ago say 30 40 years ago i suppose that is a long time ago in our in our world but where the things different specialties felt comfortable doing was pretty broad and you know and when you go from country to country um as i have i mean i've had the privilege to work in more than six different countries, clinically speaking, to say nothing about teaching, consulting, and so on, but just like clinical practice. Um, 
it's really striking like what different even like general surgeons are comfortable doing in place a versus place b or anesthetists are comfortable doing in place a versus place b and it's very easy to get caught up in this notion that the way that we do things in the united states the way thing we do things in switzerland the way that we do things in europe is really the only and best way and i've heard people justify it saying like oh well you know like we're we're providing a, a lower provision of care and i don't always think that's true i think sometimes uh, we've just gotten into a, a habit of doing things, right? I mean, yeah, there's some really interesting examples. Yeah. There's like the element of the, the more advanced your care gets, the more subspecialized it gets and the less sort of general skills people have. So I think um, one example of this that might be a really good kind of just to illustrate the point is um, Dr. David Knott. He's a, a war surgeon, but mm -hmm. in the UK, we... We do have trauma surgeons, but we don't have surgeons that would be able to do the sort of range of operations that operating in like a hostile kind of um, war environment would need. And so he um, he's quite unusual and he goes abroad and he teaches this whole range of operations um, that, that most kind of uh, traditionally trained surgeons would not have the breadth um, of practice to to sort of teach. Um, so yeah, I think the more the more advanced a system gets, the more subspecialized it gets, and then the the less general skills there are. Whereas in sort of maybe what we would consider to be uh, less advanced um, healthcare systems, people are still able to do those kind of general kind of cover because they have to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or even um, even like skills that someone might have that think it's inappropriate to use, but. Um, well, there is an example. I'm taking this example out of uh, the ICRC's war surgery textbook, but I've also seen this practice in the field myself. So it's very difficult to, if you have a bunch of unconscious patients who you need to transport, I mean, not one, not two, but you, let's say you have eight, nine, 10 patients that have head injuries or are unconscious, but are breathing spontaneously. What are you going to do when you transport them all? All these patients are, are at risk of obstructing their airway. And, um, you know, the, the class teaching for airway protection is just, just to intubate these patients. But if you intubate somebody, it's really difficult for them to breathe if you don't have someone bagging them or doing a portable vent. Um, so one of the, the sort of like old school ways they would handle this is they would just, they would just trach these patients before transport, you know, just to reduce the risk of obstruction. And then we just trach them and then line them up so that there would be no, no issues with if they vomited or if there's some other, you know, if, if whatever that, that the risk of it, not zero, of course. And there, there is morbidity associated with performing, you know, that sort of surgical airway management in the field, of course. But if we're talking about long transport times out the, the staff to do mechanical ventilation, bagging, et cetera, then something which would be completely insane and unreasonable in just about all of Europe becomes actually um, not only a viable option, but perhaps a really, really effective way of saving people's lives in, in aggregate, right? So I think what, what I have found is that a lot of us who have had the privilege to have been trained in really great places, um, like I had the privilege of going to some of the best, you know, the, the best schools in the United States and being trained by some of the some of the leaders in, in my field, very very privileged to have had that experience. Um, 
but also bias me in a way against the practices that seem kind of backward initially. So uh, yeah. Um, so part of what we do is just trying to, trying to take, you know, return to first principles. Like what is it going to take to save as many lives as possible to prevent morbidity, to make systems that are safe for both the personnel who are trying to rescue and the person being rescued. And like you said, sometimes that is stripping it back to first principles. What, what is the, the key points here? So just when you went from your training and I think you mentioned Yale and, uh, you know, a couple of other really great schools that you, you'd been to in your training. And then you went out to, um, do you say Southeast Asia was where you started? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what kind of mindset adjustment or, or kind of challenges did you go through personally? If you, if you were going from sort of such a high quality of care, and, and healthcare provision to, I'm imagining a little bit less than that. I think the thing that I found the most difficult at first was the, the apathy. There's, there's this point where there's just, there's just so much work to be done and there's so few medical staff that I think as a means of self-preservation, a lot of physicians in that setting, uh, a lot of healthcare staff, in that setting, just they do what they can, but it's, they're not like, like when the, when the, when the office is closed, it's closed. Like, and it doesn't, they don't care sometimes like how dire it's, too big. it's the problem. It, it's too big. So they're just like, you can't deal with it. So they're like, okay, you know, it's like if it's, if someone comes in with a problem where if they just did, if they just stopped what they were doing and solved it, like someone's life would be saved, but it would be paralyzed or whatever. They're just like, I'm sorry. Like I'm not working right now, you know? And so there's where, you know, where I came from, like that's just unheard of. Like no one, no one just says like, Hey, I'm so sorry. Like I'm just not doing it right now because there's, there's like, we, we feel overwhelmed a lot of the time, especially in emergency medicine, especially under the special, these, these post COVID like high departmental volumes, fewer staff, poor resources, morale is not the best. You know, I mean, a lot of us still love the work, still live for it, but it's hard. But even in that setting, even now, there's this notion that if, if, if you can make someone, if you can light someone's darkest hour, like you're going to do it even on the days when the day, even, even on the days when, it doesn't feel like you're living your life's greatest passion that you're just doing a job, getting a paycheck, even on those days where it feels a little bit dreary and tired out, even in those days when you're really worn out, there's still this notion that if, if it comes to it, you're going to stay late to try to save someone's life. Right. And so when I first went to, I think it was Lao actually, um, Luang Prabang, it, you know, just crazy that that's, that's not always that's, that, that sentiment's not universally shared. Um, and you know, as systems improve, as like, you know, the, the arrival of medicines becomes more, you know, as, as supply chains become more reliable, as staffing becomes more reliable as these things, as like, there's this equipment becomes more use, you know, more, more prevalent Then I think actually, um, you know, the willingness to try to like do more increases when you feel like the things that you do actually have an outcome, right? One thing that just drives me batty is when I see, you know, universities or other, you know, teachers of emergency medicine go to places and teach ACLS. Like, this is just crazy. This might be, people might say like that this is, uh, this might be controversial, but okay. So we, 
like advanced cardiac life support, it's great. You get a merit badge. You get to learn about how to handle. We, we think of it as essential, right? But it, it's basically, it's, you spend all this time teaching a group of people in a local environment, you know, this, this skill that we consider essential. And then afterwards, they have a skill that they can't really use, or when they use it, nothing happens. It's just so mind-blowingly stupid, right? So let's say like you're an expert at handling VTVF arrest, okay? And you have a patient come in and their hospital transport times are never, you know, like five minutes or less. They're measured in like half-hour aliquots, right? So it's been, oh, it's been two hours since they've had their arrest, okay? Great. So now we've, we've all this like sound and fury signifying nothing, right? In hospital cardiac arrest, like, okay, um, we do all the things right. And like, what sort of survival do we have? Like, do we even have like the definitive failures? They're not always functional. Like we, it's just, it's just insane where we spend all this. I've seen so many of us come, we're going to teach ACLS. We're going to give a special class on this when it's just not, when there's yeah, it, it like, it doesn't. Right. Where, yeah. Whereas if you, yeah, exactly. Where if you spent say the same amount of time say teaching, um, like the essentials of trauma care, uh, let's say wound care, splinting, and how to put a chest strain in. Like then people are like, oh wow, wow, this works. Like someone comes in, they got the bad chest trauma. I evacuate the air from their chest. You know, I check on them three days later. You know, I, I like I do all the things. Oh well, look, the that bronchoporphy is the traumatic bronchoporphy is healed. Like I can pull. If you teach them these things over the same that same week, it's amazing what their enthusiasm is. It's like wow, like patients come with problems. We use our skills, the problems get better. Yeah. Right, exactly. Like how to handle, yeah, complications of, of childbirth, right? Like that's a skill that people want to put, to put to use right away. So, yeah, so one of the first things I found, going back to your question, like all this, is, like the things that really shocked me when I first started working in low-income, low-resource settings was how much weight we gave to things that just really aren't, the low-hanging fruit and how often the low-hanging fruit is ignored. 100%. And, and I think as well, we tend to ignore the fact that the demographics and the types of injury and things. and, and Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Completely different to what we would see in like the Western world sort of thing. Massive trauma burden. Massive trauma burden. Exactly. So whereas we, I think ATLS and things like that have, have made huge advances in improving mortality and morbidity from trauma in the Western world, that's still a huge issue in a lot of developing countries. Spot on. Spot on. So leading on from your, your experiences in Southeast Asia, you then got a job in Bhutan. Tell us a little bit about that one. Uh, it was wonderful. I worked um, for the first year um, for basically the, the the government of Bhutan as a volunteer it was a really it was a really nice deal. They provided an apartment and one meal a day um, in return and free medical license. You know, just based on my my American medical license. In return, I had the privilege to to work and teach there, meet great people. You know, just try to make a difference. It was wonderful. Um, there had been um, a series of short-term, like, you know, inconstant, but not regular, but, for, you know, consistent over the preceding few years of volunteers for one month here, one month there, through, um, through like, a, a, an organization that does, like, a 
type of volunteerism for mostly retired doctors called HVO health volunteers overseas. Um, so they, you know, a lot of retired doctors had come in different specialties, not just emergency medicine to come help out and help train. Um, so it was really fun for me to be there for an entire year. And then after that year, um, I was basically hired by the, by the government. Um, uh, and it was, was wonderful. Um, my second year at the end of my second year, some other uh, American doctors came on and joined and worked there for a few years as faculty were really wonderful. Um, yeah. So it was, it was just a great experience and my time was pretty much split between um, those first two years when I was there, you know, as the only American, only non-Bhutanese emergency doctor. Um, there's only, and when we started out, there's only two of us. It was Dr. Sona and myself, which is for the country. It was kind of fun. And so, yeah, I mean, for, for representing emergency medicine. So we is, basically is create a recognized specialty in Bhutan or is it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's a train. Yeah. There's a training program in, uh, that some of my colleagues helped to establish there, uh, in emergency medicine, which is great. So yeah, it's like, um, it's very much in the like American Australasian model not like the UK model. So it's, it's, it's like very much like emergency medicine doctors in Bhutan, um, like manage all the trauma cases without the surgeons. They just refer people to the operating. If, if they need someone to have an operation, they refer them to the operating theater and the surgeons meet them there. For example, it's, 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 it's really independent, like, like all, all intensive care medicine and airway management in the department is managed by the emergency medicine staff. So like all the, whether it's an awake fiber oxygen intubation or a surgical airway, or it's all done by the emergency medicine staff, which is great. So it's a very, very strong specialty in Bhutan, um, which is wonderful. So when you first were sort of hired by the government there, what kind of, uh, what kind of gaps or, or areas of healthcare did you see that needed development? Um, so Bhutan's amazing in the sense that they have a public healthcare system, unlike all their neighbors. So part of their, their sort of their infamous, famous gross national happiness thing is that they want to provide people the means for personal development. So they provide healthcare free of cost for their citizens, but they also ration it because they can't afford to give everyone everything. Right. So there are certain things that they just can't do, you know, like cardiac cath, not happening in Bhutan. At least it wasn't when I was there. Right. Um, Spinal surgery, sharp limits on it. They could do it, but only a little bit. Orthopedics, same thing. So it's it's interesting because you know it's all it's 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 because there's so few specialists in the capital, and there's you know two other major cities. There's Mongar, the eastern capital, and Gelfu in the south. So there's a system of like the national referral hospital, and then the the referral hospital in the eastern part of the country, and then there's like district hospitals, and so like. The, the advancement of specialty care kind of grows first in the capital and then kind of trickles down to the other sites, right? Starting with like intensive care medicine and then suddenly we have a second ICU in the Eastern center of the country and then, you know, operating theaters and anesthesia and then, you know, advanced obstetrics and then and gynecological surgery like this. So it's, it's, it, they, they're sort of growing it very, very systematically. And it started because they didn't have the means of training their own medical students at first. So they had to outsource them all to like Cuba, um, India, 
right? Places like all over the world. Yeah. And the government did this to their credit. It's amazing. So they sent all these, these students out, had them be trained as doctors, and then they came back to Bhutan. And they just practiced general physicians. And they sent another crop out who then trained in specialties, and then they came back and so on. So eventually, once they developed critical mass, and they would start having their own specialty programs in country. Right. So they, you know, they just started their own surgery, internal medicine, you know, uh, like wow. emergency medicine I mean, what, programs. What an opportunity, though. And what, an, what a fantastic model from the government that they, they're willing to do that. And they, they've got the foresight and then to do that. But then yeah, and it really new medical system. There's so much opportunity for. Yeah, they're great. I mean, like there's nothing but praise, nothing but praise for the, how they do that. And then. Um, I split my time between developing critical care in the emergency department, which is kind of what I do wherever I'm working, whether it's in the States or elsewhere. I pretty much do, you know, the high acuity emergency medicine and resuscitation for the most part. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's pretty much what I've done. Uh, you know, when I've worked for the ICRC or work with the WHO, it's been along those veins, like, you know, uh, resuscitation, high, high acuity emergency medicine. Um, so I spent my time doing that and then the, the pre-hospital stuff. Now, in Bhutan, it was really interesting because it's not economically, it doesn't make sense economically to have multiple ICUs in a country with population that's, that's scattered at all sorts of places with poor access yeah, because of all the, mount, of all the mountains. So the way we do it is you have to centralize it to two ICUs or three. How and then ICUs out of interest? Um, one, 10 to 12 bed in the in the west and six to eight bed in the east wow for a population of about eight hundred thousand. yeah yeah so that, that that's those are adult icu beds in the there is a pediatric icu and then a neonatal intensive care unit as well yeah so that was that was part of part of the 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 aegis of doing critical care helicopter rescue was to basically when someone needs to someone's like requiring intensive level intensive intensive care we'd fly out we would start the intensive care and then we would take them back and continue the care either in the emergency department or the ICU so yes. that that was the idea yeah so we've yeah true retrieval so and we would you know we would we would do retrieval rarely from scene but we do that on occasion. And then more often from like a basic health unit, which is based like a like a, a small like a small clinic staffed by a nurse or you know a district hospital, like so on. And then we take them back to place that require referral. And yeah, we would I mean gnarly cases, crazy cases, like thoracotomies in the field, intubation, surgical airways. Um, what's the, what's the existing pre-hospital structure like in, in Bhutan? Was is there a paramedic service or that? What's the training like? What's the <laughs> Uh, they created their own pre they 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 i think um the real father of pre-hospital care in bhutan uh, or emergency care in bhutan is the is the country's neurosurgeon tashi tenzin so he was a neurosurgeon first the the country's first neurosurgeon but he was always a passionate advocate for emergency medicine and so you know one of the problems that he saw was that there wasn't um there wasn't a really good advancement or career ladder for for pre-hospital personnel in a lot of countries. So what he wanted to do was to create a, like a, a real training ladder. So you could start doing basic pre-hospital care and then move up and then go back into medicine. Right. 
So you wouldn't just be stalled at paramedic and have to decide whether you're going to go and retrain as a nurse or go back to medical school or try to become a physician assistant in the United States, for example. Like there, you try to pr just pr eliminate that quandary, having it just flow seamlessly into other professions if, you know, if that's what you wanted and allow the care to continue to advance with the goal of eventually having... Yeah. And then you could maybe go, you could choose to go into maybe like intensive care medicine or, 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 or you could go you paramedic and then you would like, you know, uh, you have an opportunity to like, you know, go back to two years of medical school and then retrain as an emergency physician and then do pre-hospital critical care or whatever, something like this. Like they try to make it more of a seamless process. Yeah, so, cool yeah. So initially it was just ambulance drivers, you know, and I, I had the privilege of doing some of the, you know, the checklists and protocols and, uh, pre-hospital care for the ground-based service. Um, and then it's, you know, it's developed into one more recently that has Amos driver and then a provision of care where if people have very, very high care needs, then they, they call for air rescue. So originally it sounds like there was a lot of retrieval from clinics or smaller hospitals, et cetera. Right. And now it's sort of more developed into more like primary missions going to scene and sort of doing more on scene. No, I would say I would say still mostly probably 80% from hospitals. Yeah. And then uh, you were mentioning that there was some pretty sort of gnarly patients and procedures that you guys were doing out in the field. Um and is that at clinics or how does that kind of work into it? Yeah, um all wherever. You know, wherever we find wherever, wherever we find people. You know. Sometimes we, you know, it would be right outside the helicopter. Sometimes be on the side of the tarmac. Sometimes be in the road. Sometimes be inside the hospital. We go to a district hospital where um, patients were in forward respiratory distress, and we were the only people who had the portable ventilator. You know, the equipment, the the induction agents, the paralytics, the ventilator, the oxygen. We were the only ones who had the ability to start mechanical ventilation and sedation or pressors or whatever. So we would do all, you know, depending on the weather, you know, always preferable to like do your stuff and then put them, load them in the helicopter and then fly. But if weather dependent, sometimes we'd have to load them up and then inside the helicopter, we would, you know, intubate them, put them on a ventilator, start central line, pressers and all that. But typically we do it in the field if we could and then load them and then fly. But yeah, so it just vary. And what yeah. sort of transport times were you looking at there? Uh, it varies in that part of the world. It's really interesting. Have you, are you familiar at all with Nepal? So it's really interesting. Well, it's really interesting that like the mountains tend to run, you know, east, west in Nepal and north, south in Bhutan. So that has dramatic effects on transport time based on the weather. So wintertime, you can just pop up over a mountain range and just fly across because the skies are clear. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're like two mountain ranges over and up top in this little village up here, you might just make a beeline for it, no problem. Um, but in the summertime with all the monsoons and the clouds and like, you know, each time you pass another valley, you have these weather fronts, you might have a transport time of like 50 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes. Cause you might have to fly all the way South to the Indian border, you know, cause you know, India's flat and the mountains kind of come up and then Bhutan starts at like, you know, a thousand meters or so on. And then just goes up from there. So you come all the way down and then you pop right along the edge of that Indian airspace and you fly along the south, southern part of Bhutan because the weather's clear there. And then you go underneath the clouds up one of those, those valleys to get to your retrieval site. And then you have to kind of thread the needle back down and then go back up again. 
Um, ah, so really variable, just depending on season and weather. Yeah, it just and weather, and you know, it's and because there's no, you, you know, like Bhutan is like it's funny, right? Like in most parts of Europe, airspace is very clearly delineated. The different types of airspace, which parts are controlled. There's lots of rules governing what type of aircraft you can fly in which places over what type of population centers. And those rules just don't exist. And the airspace is uncontrolled. Like there's lots of, there's, there's whole parts of the world where the airspace is just not, you know, like they, they don't have the sort of air traffic control that you might think. They, they'll have it around the international airport, right? So you'll have like a, people will go to a waypoint and then from the waypoint, they have to fly by visual flight rules down. But um, it's really interesting. So there, there are big parts of the world outside of Europe where this is where this is the case, and and Bhutan's one of those places where you know there's like you know four flight for international flights into the airport of Paro, they borrow Indian air traffic control, but you know the, but the rest of the airspace is you know is open. Wow. So yeah, so you, it just leads to all sorts of like really interesting. So there's no so there's no instrument flight rules. Yeah. Long way of saying it. there's no there's no there's no like so if it's if it's it's not like Norway right like the 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 the, the Norse lift ambulance I mean what an incredible crew right like they they can fly by IFR to many many sites throughout their their rescue operations and they have, and, then, and the location of their heli bases is to like is, is is brilliantly designed to minimize transport times and so on there's none of that. So None of that. So you have huge, flying, yeah. Visual flying rules only, basically, no instrumental flying. Right, and and that has huge effects on the type of interventions we do and the type of equipment yeah. we bring and so on. Like for example, like when Rabot was all the road, you know, remember way back when, when the London ambulance did that first Rabot in the field, everyone was like, "Whoa, this is so cool!" You know, the, the enthusiasm for Rabot is kind of tamped down right now. But you know, a few years back, everyone was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" And we were like all about it. We're like, let's do it. Cause we have these bad pelvic fractures, you know, and we are like, let's do it. And then we realized that we just couldn't do it because the transport times are so long. We'd infarct people's spines. Like if we put someone under Raboa and like 50 minutes later, we took the balloon down, like we there, that's it. Like, you know, we've infarcted their aorta or we, we've killed off part of their spine. Forgive me. Like we, you know, we, like they just keep, just can't have the device in for that long. So it really does limit the sort of interventions that we could do and how we could do them. And, and that informed lots of choices we made, especially about, like I said, about do you do compress epidurals before flight or after, you know, if I'm in leads and I'm flying five minutes to a surgical center, maybe it's better if, you know, yeah, it's not ideal. I still philosophically think that like 35 minutes is still no good, but some people would argue, no, 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 35 minutes. Okay. We can wait for 35 minutes and have the neurosurgeon do the, do the burr hole. Yeah, like is that really talk around that a little bit because i think um <laughs> i was going to ask you about sort of like what challenges and teething problems you had in setting up the pre-hospital service in bhutan but I, I think this kind of feeds into it in terms of the decisions and kind of clinical care that you decide you can deliver but do you want to talk more specifically about the kind of epidurals head injuries decompressing in the field side of things um so it, there's just a few procedures that are very very time sensitive and one of them is epidural decompression under the right circumstances. And this is something that I don't think is controversial. Um, we know that patients who have um, acute traumatic epidural hematomas 
if they start to decompensate, then they have a window of time, somewhere between 75 and 90 minutes, after which time they don't do that well, right? And if the decompression happens, you know, before, you know, before that window ends, then they have a much higher likelihood of having like a neurologically intact survival than they do afterwards. No one's done, to my knowledge, a study randomizing people to time of epidural decompression. But I think, you know, based on observational data, it would, it would seem that um, people do really bad if, if they have a fall in their GCS and they have a known epidural and people wait more than 90 minutes to, from the time of change of consciousness, right? So knowing that and knowing that the performance of, 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 of burr holes um, is something that there's, there's, there's so many case reports in the literature of it being performed by non-surgeons, either with interosseous needles or even with, you know, Hudson brace drill, um, and just in different contexts and different times over the last 30, 40 years. And we know that general surgeons are perfectly capable of doing this. And, and you know, and there's many reports of, of it being successfully and safely done by emergency, emergency medicine teams, whether they're, you know, trained in emergency medicine or anesthesiology. So, you know, my, my personal philosophy is that it's, it's, it's ethically inappropriate for people to defer life-saving care when, um, because they feel that something is not, you know, that something is, yeah, with it. Yeah. Like if something would, would be within their scope of practice, but it's like deferred to the subspecialist because of, you know, legal concerns or guilding like our guild says this is our what we do and not what you do and because it's so obvious that like how we cut that pie of medical care like who does what varies so obviously from place to place that you know it really should be um now i'm not suggesting for example that there are certain types of medical procedures that are that are complex that require you know tremendous amounts of experience life sport and so on Right, like no one's saying that you should uh, try to repair a torn aorta in the field, like that's crazy, right? Um, or that you should try to do, do do procedures in the field that are are you know uh, that you're you're receiving hospital can't support. Like if you're going to do what what you're saying is that decompressing a, a skull for for an intracranial hematoma is very much within the skill set of a ed physician or 100 we're taught we're taught how to do it it's it should be it should be well i get what i don't so what i don't understand is that we have to choose our, so i'm assuming that people are, are 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 trained and they know about proper patient selection and they're doing it for the benefit of the patient for not they're not, they're not their heroics right let's let's just put that aside and say okay it's it's the right case look how you know we are quite happy to do pre-hospital thoracotomies Right or even emergency department resuscitative, like we're 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 happy to do resuscitative thoracotomies in the emergency department, right? Um, and like the survival rates from those vary tremendously depending on where they're done and how, right? We know that that's a procedure that is best done really as close as possible to the time of injury, and is is you know is really ideally a pre-hospital procedure, honestly. Um, uh, you know, that case series from London Aerial Ambulance kind of shows, I think, pretty, you know, conclusively that like you do that on the scene, they have much better outcomes than if you wait 
until they're in the department. But people are still really keen on doing that. And I would argue that that is a much more complicated and much more dangerous for the staff than decompressing an epidural. How are, how are people confirming that this is an epidural rather than a subdural or sort of intracranial bleed in a kind of, uh, you know, maybe a hospital that hasn't got access to a CT? So the first thing is, uh, before I answer that, answer that question, I'll answer another one, which is, so if, you, if, if, if I were to advise teams on how to do this, I would say you, there's two circumstances under which you can do it, right? The first is that you just do only CT confirmed. Um, and you'd be like, well, what's the point of that? Because usually um, there are places where people have access to a, to a CT or to a head CT. They don't have full body CTs, but they have head CTs. Um, but they don't have access to surgical care. Okay. That's surprisingly, like, I'm surprised to see how often that's the case in some low-income places where they can get a CT, but they can't, you know, they can't get, you know, surgical people prior to, to so that'd be like one set of cases, right? In those cases, a lot of times if you have CT, but you don't have neurosurgery, but you have general surgery, well, then maybe the, the, the question is to like, well, have the general surgeons assist the retrieval crews in doing the decompression prior to evacuation. Like that would be the optimal setup. But if you're going to do it truly in a pre-hospital setting and you don't have a portable CT scanner or there's not one available to you, then I think the, the, the standard teaching of doing it by the presence of anisocoria, I think that's, that's your, your best bet. So you, you have to look for uh, a, the combination of the following things. You know, you have new onset anisocoria after an appropriate, appropriate mechanism sufficient to cause an epidural, right? And a drop in someone's GCS, either a GCS below nine or a drop in GCS of three points from point of patient contact. So someone gets hit in the head and, you know, they have a GCS of 12. And then over the course of, you know, 20 minutes, you see their GCS drop to nine or eight and you don't have a CT, but you see their, their, one of their pupils is blown, then I think that's a context where it's reasonable to attempt, you know, um, empiric decompression uh, if you're looking at transport times that are outside the window for any meaningful salvage, right? Like if it's, if it's you or they're going to get decompressed in nine hours from now, then I think it's unethical for the retrieval team not to try something, right? And you mentioned um, it using an IO needle or drill to decompress a epidural. So many, so many examples of this being done. Um, the trouble with IO, and it is a real trouble, is it comes down to time from injury because the blood clots. So, you know, in my experience, if you try to do an IO decompression, then you run into problems where you just can't get blood out because it's clotted right right just a little but um if it's you know you're more likely to have success in my opinion if it's pediatric like some of the younger pediatric cases who are ironically the ones who are more likely to get epidurals anyway um and it's closer to time of injury right so it's tougher to get a clot out through a, a small diameter. oh yeah it's not possible it's just not well yeah yeah so even i mean it's, it's hard to and the, the you don't need to evacuate tons of clot, right? You don't, that's not necessary. What's necessary is um, just, you just need to take the pressure off to buy time. So, you know, 80, 100 mLs of blood, they might, that might be all you need. 
Wow, it's such an interesting idea that um, that we could potentially be doing this in the right circumstances for the right patient pre-hospitally. Yeah, in the right system. In the, in the right system. Yeah, I mean, but I, I would argue that even in Europe, it, it, it might not, it might be appropriate, right? Because, I mean, there's, if, if you have hospital A, it's going to transfer to hospital B. And if we include like all the phone calls and the permissions and the reports and all those things, even though it might be, you know, a 15 minute ambulance ride, if that realistically is going to be a 90 minute point of care from, from, from point of care, you know, point of patient contact to operative decompression. Like, why are we allowing that to happen? Like, why do we think that's okay? Or who are we really serving? Are we, are we protecting ourselves? Are we protecting like our, you know, the rights of our subspecialties? Or are we really looking after people that, you know, who we've been charged to care of? Like, that's, that's, that's my question. So I, it's not that I'm like, I, I have this view that emergency medicine should be maximally aggressive and ethical. Like, it's not that I'm trying to say we should all be cowboys. Far from it. But too often I see that the thing that's stopping us is not, not that, you know, we're unable to do something, but because there's some other, someone else in the hospital says you don't have the permission to do it at this time. Like you can do it if it's like four in the morning, but you can't do it now. And it just, that, it, like no other specialty operates under these constraints where they're like, no, no, no. It's like mother, may I? Like, I think that's like, this is, this is, this is something, this is a cause I'll go to the map for anytime. Like we have a list of things that we're, that we are credentialed and empowered to do. And we should do all of them. And we should ask no one's permission, right. Except for like our own specialty and to make sure that we're really like letting right be done, like not doing something that might hurt somebody and might not, but truly like if, the, if it's really going to benefit the patients we serve, why are we asking someone else's permission? Madness. Yeah, I think a lot of people like pre-hospitally and within emergency medicine will recognize the frustration that goes with a referral that takes hours and meantime your patients deteriorating in front of you and because somebody said no you can't do that that's a neurosurgeon's job it can be a very frustrating position to be in. No it's unethical like we've created a system where we're, we're like no 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 like the the uh, the fiefdom of the subspecialty for and we're not talking like that's not avoidable if they, you know, if someone has both their iliac arteries clotted off, right, and they need vascular, like the emergency vascular surgery, and yeah, like the system has constraints and times, and like I can't do that, so there's no expectation that I should do that, right? And it's a rare problem, so what are we going to do? But there, there are there are certain things that fall within our rubric that yet we, you know, we we could that we might be able to make a, a difference, right? I mean, it just because we, we've won this, the whole different hospitals in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, rather, have like made this fought, fight and won it vis-a-vis our right to use anesthetics, right? Like for me, it's so insane that I would not be allowed to use propofol, methohexatol, ketamine, any of these medicines to safely and without pain, uh, like cardiovert somebody or reduce their hip, you know, something like this, remove road rash from someone's leg. Like, it's just crazy to me, but I know there are places where trained emergency doctors are not allowed to do this, let alone, you know, in hospital when they have like all the resources they need, they have to like somehow ask permission from someone else when our train, like madness, madness. Like I would never, 
Yeah, I would never allow that. I would never work in a place like that. Yeah. No, never. Great. Um, I'm just going to maybe bring us back to uh, when you were setting up the Bear Badger like pre-hospital retrieval service, which I understand is 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 not a government run service. Is that right? Is that what you were saying? So there are two, there's our team and there's Bhutan's team. Uh, in the beginning, they were one and the same. Like we ran their service. So now it's, the, now it's, it's entirely their government. And it's a government run service. For it's a government run service, retrieval. right? We still, we still provide consulting for them. Um, but it's a government-run service. Something um, I had come across <clears throat> in the literature before about Bhutan specifically is the amount of sort of head injuries, which we've already touched on, but also maxillofacial trauma from um, bear attacks. And oh, crazy! Yeah. yeah, crazy, crazy. Maybe just talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so um, it's really interesting. So the Himalayan black bear is the most aggressive, uh, reportedly the most aggressive species of bear in the world and um some people think i'm not a zoologist so this is like with proviso of like what i've learned from from speaking with veterinarians and zoologists in country but the, the the thought is that because they kind of share the same territory with tigers that they are really aggressive about their food and so as human human societies encroach on the bear's natural habitat uh the bears attack people on site and typically this happens when a single person goes out foraging in the woods for something and Himalayan bear sees them and rushes and then attacks them. And there's lots of reports from that part of the world, from you know, India, Nepal, um, uh, Burma, or Myanmar, of the injury patterns from great cats versus from bears. Bear attacks typically much more likely involve the upper thorax and the face. And they're 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 less much less likely to be lethal than great cats, which usually just they just usually kill people. So in Bhutan, we lots of facial injuries, and um, so before I before we started the helicopter rescue program in Bhutan, they had an ad hoc program where they had helicopters and they had a system involved where like, they would try to airlift patients without any sort of medical care, you know, for a period of time that this went back a few years. And so um, we looked at all the times in which local, like a local surgeon was called to go try to help someone with a bear attack prior to this ad hoc air rescue up into including the point where we took over, where we kind of, created the the like a true retrieval service with like trained personnel and medical equipment and triaging and dispatch and all these modern elements as opposed to like an ad hoc like oh hey the government has helicopters we maybe we could call and get one sitting over here like this um we took all those cases from all the different major places where they had surgical and surgical sites in the country and then we just sort of cataloged like how many times someone had a bear attack and then what percentage of those required surgical airway by a, by a surgeon or by a you know an emergency medicine specialist, and it was a remi- remarkably high percentage. It was it was it was crazy how many you know over the course of uh, you know a three or four year period you know beginning with a few years before the start of the retrieval service and then continuing after the the start 
you know, so it was really crazy. Like I got to speak with a bunch of um, my Bhutanese surgical colleagues that work in some of these more remote places. I'm like, oh yeah, like I'll never, I'll remember, I remember that case. That case was crazy. You know, like they, like, oh yeah, I've done it twice or I've done it two times, like three times or, you know, like they've, they it's happened enough. Front of neck access they had- yeah. Like not, not like all, not all the time, but like often enough that people remember it, you know, and there was a, it, it just varies from year to year. Like some years there'd be like, like no cases. And then some years it'd be like three or four. And Bhutan so, cats as well, does it, or is, is it that- does? But they're like they're, it does, and it's tigers. But they're like they try to hide. They don't. They don't. They have they all they have a whole bunch of big cats that live up in the Himalayas and elsewhere. But they try to you know not publicize where they are because they don't want to get poached or hurt that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's rare. Like I've never seen, I've never seen a big cat attack. I've seen plenty of bear attacks. And I've seen a few like water buffalo or, you know, large, large undulate attacks like guar, buffalo, elephant. Like one of my favorite, one of my favorite things that happened in Bhutan was um, this farming accident. We were called to go take this woman with a, from a farm. It was like, we've had a bad farming accident. So we fly down and we don't see any farm equipment anywhere. We're like, where's the farming? Where's the accident? This woman who's like in terrible distress. And she's like, just clearly struggling, struggling to breathe. I'm like, what happened? And she's like, oh, she, you know, she, she attacked the elephant. I'm like, what? So apparently like Mr. Babar, the elephant just strolled into her banana farm and just started like helping himself to the bananas. She's like, just, just like peeling them and eating them. And this woman started like left her house and saw the elephant and took a broom and just started like, like hitting him on the back of his elephantine body. And the elephant was like, just did not care. So then she decides to turn the broom around and poke him up his backside. Well, Babar did not like that one bit. So he turned around and he gave her a trunk clubbing. He just clubbed her with his trunk, like pow, 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 and knocked her down. And then like went on his merry way. And she was like, Oh, so they called for this farming accident. Cause like, what else would you call this crazy thing? So we arrived like, well, that was the farming accident. Um, yeah, she was on mechanical ventilation for like three weeks because of her pulmonary. Like, yeah, yeah, because she had all she's like this terror. She like she broke like like some crazy number of ribs, like nine ribs or something. Had a flail chest on the left side. Had bad bilateral pulmonary contusions. Came through the whole thing fine, but you know she had a rough she had a rough go of it. You know, oh, lesson. Do not if the you know it's sad if the elephant's stealing your property. The elephant can steal your property. I kind of kind of gets into what, one of the reasons I read that there was getting a, a sort of increasing number of bear attacks in in Bhutan was the expanding human population kind of increasing. Exactly, exactly. As as is the case in lots of other places too. Yeah, the kind of you know what? Mm-hmm, yeah, right. Like when like the alligators and the hippos are like eating children in South Africa. It's like same same sort of thing. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, could we just maybe pivot a little bit and talk about the Mountain Rescue Service in Bhutan? I believe you helped set up as well. Is that right? It has had, yeah, it's it's it has gone undergone different iterations. So, um, I don't know where it is most recently post COVID because we there's no technical mountaineering allowed in Bhutan, but yet people get find themselves in these incredibly precarious places because they'll do these these long high altitude treks so they'll be at you know above 14 15,000 feet for a week on these super remote areas that they require yaks in order to carry their supplies 
and, and they'll get hurt there and they'll be like just nowhere to access them or incredibly um cordyceps are you familiar with, with what a cordyceps is so cordyceps are an incredibly valuable part of himalayan medicine of chinese medicine and so it's like this quirky thing where a fungus infects a caterpillar and takes over the caterpillar's brain and causes the caterpillar to climb up to the top of a grass stalk and then basically turn into like this little tasty fungus in the hopes that a bird will come down and eat the caterpillar and then spread the fungus throughout his lifespan. So these like dried fungal caterpillars on the tips of like leaves, which only happen at very, very high altitude in remote places are like an essential element of like cordyceps tea and all sorts of traditional medicines. And they're worth a fortune. Wow. Yeah. So fortune hunters will go try to collect these during certain times of year and they will get themselves into the most insane precarious places in order to, to gather them. And so you will, we, we had to go try to rescue people who were badly injured unable to move, not from like recreational mountaineering, but from like going to places where most people would not go without, you know, technical expertise, guides, ropes, backup, et cetera, just to collect these cordyceps. And you said that um, there's no technical mountaineering allowed in Bhutan. Mm -hmm. Is that For religious reasons. Spiritual? Yeah. It's yeah, like right on. Yeah, yeah, right on. In fact, there was uh, like they a few years back, there was a group that tried to come and do some heli skiing in Bhutan. You know, like they chartered a helicopter, they wanted to go up and they do some heli skiing. Yeah. And it was like they were all set to go and they thought they were good. And then at the last minute, like as they went up to that little village, everyone was like, no, 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 you may not go up there and ski down. Like that is not cool. I like that's like gonna just... for mountains. Do you know what I mean? I think it's. Uh... Yeah. yeah, you know, I, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's like you, I see it, I, I, I see it both ways. Like if, if you could climb mountains with, with like the, 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 the austerity and the simplicity of, of a mo like a modern mountaineer that uses equipment that doesn't damage the mountain where you remove all your, you're not like, you're not drilling into the mountain and leaving your own, your own pins there. You know, you're like, you climb and you leave no trace. Yeah. Um, that that's extraordinary. And, you know, I think that's like, uh, it's a great sport. And it's also, I think a fundamental part of human experience. On the other hand, you know, you don't want like the Everest experience. I was going to mention, that. right. You know, yeah, exactly. There's like a, there's like a balance to it. Right. And I, you know, I don't know what the right answer is, but suffice to say, yeah. So, um, our initial work was just to try to create a system where, uh, local actors could initiate rescues under certain parameters and then call for technical expertise. And then we would go, and land and then try to climb or do like perched you know perched one one skid or perched landings to try to facilitate rescues uh -huh. super dangerous but like you know we, we we practiced some of those operations which is really fun um i learned a lot about uh like the hazards involved with like high altitude power management and aircraft and you know so changing weather 
is the is the mountain rescue service there still very much kind of a um kind of run down to the local village see who's available to come up and and help sort of thing, it's it changed it's really it's really changed like it's like because they've 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 brought in experts from switzerland to try to teach more of like the rope skills to guides because you know everyone who goes up there has a Bhutanese guide they think for this is for like for the because there's two sets of rescue operations right there's the people who are doing the high altitude trekking that will have a guide with them. So they try to teach this guide and the guide team and the whole, all of them how to do this. So when they're up in this high place, they can start the rescues and then we can, they can call for evacuation. So it's like, you know, we perform both two halves of the same service where the guides do the first part and then we'll come do the second. Um, and then there's the second group that I mentioned, which is like cordyceps hunters, which is that that's, that's tricky, right? Cause they don't have a guide. They're locals. They're, they're, they're locals and they're usually locals who are, who know the terrain, who are from these places, who are not, you know, but they've just gone very, very far afield. And the difficulty is, is that the, you know, if you call for directions, you know, like you're, you and I go up in the mountains and we're local and we've never flown in a plane. We've never flown in a helicopter. We've never like our, and we know the ground very, very well, but our intuition about where things are, it's just so foreign to how you and I think about things. So, you know, they call for help. I'm like, okay, where are they? Where is the injured person? Good reference. And they're like, what? So that's the whole reason why, that's the whole reason why we went and did hold all the gridding, right? Cause they didn't have that. They would be like, well, uh, you start from the village and you're going to walk basically a day and a half. And then day and a half, you're going to reach this big river. And then you're going to turn right at the big river. And we're, you go up there about a day and you're going to see a bunch of huge rocks. You're going to climb on top of the rocks and that's where the face is going to be. And then when you, you, you basically scale that, that cliff face and then that's where he broke his leg. And you're like, Oh my God. So you're looking at like, you know, satellite images and you're trying to figure out, okay, so here's the village days walk. How many hours of sunlight was there? They walk about four, you know, whatever, six kilometers an hour. And you're, you're trying to like do, to make these gross estimates, hoping you like, these look like these could be, the, could these be the rocks I'm talking about? Okay. And then this could be the cliff base, but you, that has a huge error rate. And so it was, this was the, was the genesis of us going and trying to grid these things. We'd be like, okay, if you're going to go out with your friends, you know, tell show, yeah. tell the village elder, tell the village elder where you're going to go or, you know, come back and look at the map yourself and be like, ah, it's here, I think. And then we would have the grid and we'd be able to do it. So this sort of training with locals. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, that's that how kind of really started nicely with the, with the mountain rescue service there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's evolved. It's like, and it continues to evolve, continues to evolve as you know, the, the, the local populations develop more and more sophistication with like the tools and the equipment. And, um, Bhutan doesn't have the resources to use cell phones as a means of finding people you know like in europe like even if you're in a place where there's no cell cell phone service if someone's cell phone is on active you can use certain types of technology on board an aircraft to kind of help locate them but that technology is too expensive to use in a lot of parts of the world so yeah and a lot of parts of the world don't not everyone has cell phones so it's not always a reliable way to do things anyway is it well yeah, it's true. I would say that most people, it's a cra it's crazy to me. Like people may not have like a television or a car, but they'll almost always have. It's incredible to me, but the cell phone may not have batteries, but people almost always have a cell phone. It's crazy. They may not bring it with them yeah. when they're mountaineering, but yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
Um, great. Well, I, we turn to look at the sort of uh, we've we've talked a bit about the expeditionary side of uh, Bear Badger. Um, can you maybe speak about some of the memorable expeditions that you've supported? Oh my gosh. Um... Boy, there was a really fun one um, in Georgia. That was really that was that was wonderful. Um, there was we did one in mm, mm, mm. we did one in Kauai. That was really fun for obvious reasons. Oh, one of the one of the Hawaiian Islands. Oh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. None of um, uh, none of the expeditions that we've done, like a few, a few in Nepal. Uh, none of the ones that we've done have had anything happen. We've done a lot more support for stuff. Um, part of the reason why we kind of why we've moved into more of the like preparation work and supply chain stuff for points of known evacuation. Right, like working for WHO or places where we like know is because it feels a lot like babysitting. Like you, it's really cool. Like it's it's such a privilege to be an expeditionary doc. It's like it's such a cool experience. But um, if you've had the privilege to work in or near conflict zones, which I hope is one that you never have, but if you've ever had that privilege, then you get the experience of like just how. Like you, you get to do so much of the un under-resourced, really difficult medicine. And so when you go to these other things, you're always like feeling like something terrible could happen. And you're always trying to think about, you know, how you would respond. So it's like you, you, you're trying to enjoy yourself. But at the same time, you're always like kind of sort of hypervigilant about what could go wrong. And, um, and yeah, it's just, and then most of the time, nothing, really nothing happens, especially if you're going with like really skilled prepared people, because I think this is a difference too. I don't know how most people operate. Like we wouldn't, if someone's like, Hey, we got money. We'd love to go. We would be like, sure, let's talk. And we'd interview you and you're like, Oh, you've never done this before. You don't know what you're doing. You're out of shape. You're not physically conditioned. Um, no, thanks. You know, like we're not gonna try to be responsible for you. <laughs> like, There's no way you're not, you're not, in, you, you know, like we, if you, we'd love to do this with you if you're willing to like, we could tell you what we would require. Like we want you to follow this physical fitness training regimen and pass these sort of physical standards and, you know, get some intermediate experience. And if you've, if you've done that, then we're, we're totally down. We'd love to help, you know? Um, and I know operators that go both ways. Like I know operators for Everest who are like, you have two legs that work. You pay us enough. We'll get you on the mountain. Right. And those guys are amazing. Those guys and gals are amazing. Uh, but there are other plain ones who are like, wait, what? You know, I'm not going to, you know, you are not in shape for this. You know, I need to see. So we, we tend to fall more on that side. Um, but it's, it's, we just have a lot of, you know, right now, a lot of it is just going with friends. Like a lot of the stuff we did, like I said, is like preparatory work, the cartography, the supply chain management, you know, the stuff that people often overlook. Like we want to create a, we want to, we want to create a remote hospital for these people because we love them. Great. How are you going to make sure that you have a supply of like anesthetics, oxygen, medical gas, et cetera? Like what's your, how, how you want our help doing that? No problem. I'll help you do that. 
Yeah. yeah. It's like how many like, yaks do we need to get all the oxygen cylinders up? Exactly. Like that's like this is our like this is our expeditionary. This is our salva expeditionary medicine. So you yeah, want to create yeah. like a forward based camp, like what we like the type of expeditionary medicine we do is like how can we help you create a point of care, like a like a whatever, clinic, hospital, whatever, point A. And how how can we make that happen? How can we help you make that happen? You know, whether it's rescue there operations so many or many interesting things that you've touched on there, especially about this kind of aspect of um, maybe if you come from a background of emergency medicine or of conflict medicine and you're used to kind of having to do some pretty extreme things um, to very sick people, to the contrast of that of being on expedition where your shift is mainly, your, your focus is mainly on prevention and actually the chances of something happening are quite slim. And if they are, it's going to be likely something minor, you know, DMV or something like that. Um, yeah, it's a very different mindset, isn't it? Um, to, to mm. what you might do normally in your day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of it is like just good body making. Like, like the thing that you can do to save yourself is just like work on your alignment. Go see a physical therapist. Make sure that you've got great posture. That you're you've got no joint restrictions. That you can lift heavy weight. You've got good cardiovascular stamina. That your your connective tissues are well adapted. That you're you're comfortable carrying weight for periods of time. And that you've got that you've got footwear that you're really comfortable in for long periods of time, you know, like that. You, we all can do that, and getting there might take people different lengths of time. But if you can do that, then you know that takes a lot of our worries off the table. Yeah, it's stuff that we don't want to deal with anyway, because it's so hard to deal with that in the field. It's so, so hard. I see why the shift into the sort of more preparatory and logistical side of expedition planning? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting niche that i've not really thought a lot about before admittedly but it's the best yeah no it's really interesting especially if someone's like we want to go here to do these things and we're going to be there for you know 15 months and during that time we're going to need these sort of medical supplies and we anticipate like this sort of injury rate and so on and it might be low and we're like okay well here's here's how we would recommend you to prepare for evacuations and here's how you do it and here's the sort of people you need and you know? I, and I think um, one of the other questions I was going to ask you was it was kind of around what are the key aspects of an expedition that you'd want to know about before consulting for that company. But I think you've you've covered that in a lot of mm -hmm. detail in terms of you know what mm -hmm. you're going to ask about the individuals and the company and what the requirements right. are. Right. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Should we just maybe finish off with if you've you've already talked about your your elephant trauma case, but are there any other kind of seminal cases where you've learned a lot from them or that they were you know just a really cool case? Oh, we've had, oh, oh my God. Yeah. So I've had so many wild cases. Um, a case that I haven't talked about before, I think, uh, is like, you know, the traumatic cardiac arrest case from the, from the water Buffalo goring that we resuscitated successfully in the field was pretty cool. And then the, the, the delivering, twins in the setting of placental abruption and giving, you know, transfusing them, um, at 12,000 feet. Like that was pretty, that was pretty wild. Um, I feel like it's, it's almost like the equivalent of name dropping, but like in expedition cases, it's like, Oh, which one shall I talk about the time that we had the traumatic Well, you do it. You do it enough. You work, you work enough austere places for long enough. You just, you know, um, and it's so different. There's a difference between accompanying expeditions and then doing rescue ops. If you're doing rescue ops, like it really means you're going to see 
a lot of gnarly stuff. Whereas if you're just doing expedition stuff, you'll go to a lot more places than I will. You'll have gone on way more places than I will, but you probably won't have seen as many cases as if that makes sense. So it's a trade-off, you know, you can go more places as an expeditionary doctor than you will doing rescue operations. But if you do rescue operations, you're going to see a lot more things. Well, I'm, I'm, curi- I'm curious now. You've got to tell me about the, the water buffalo goring traumatic kind of thing. Oh, that's a fame. Oh, uh, that one was. So what made that case so ridiculous was that was our first case. This is why it was so ridiculous. So I have a, I have a philosophy. I, this is one of, my, one of my life philosophies. The time to do something is not when you're ready. The time to do something is when you're almost ready. Because if you wait until you're ready, you'll never do anything. So I believe. Yeah. So like you're not going to be ready to have children until you've already had children. And that last like 10% of getting ready is going to be having the children. You're not going to be ready to start doing rescue operations until you're already doing them. You're not going to be ready to go to medical school until you're already in medical school. Like that last 10% or whatever it is, you need to start doing it to actually get ready, you know? So that's, that's the whole thing of imposter syndrome, isn't it? It's like, I'm here, but I'm not good enough to be here. And I don't know enough to be here. And I'm not ready absolutely, to be here. Absolutely. Actually, and it's, you know what? I'm here and I'm doing the job. Yeah. And it's a hundred percent true that you're not ready to be there, but if you'd wait any longer, you'd never go. So with us, you know, we had, we had, our, we, had our, we had our our duffel bags, we had our gear, we had all of our, our checklists, we had our pre-flight checklist, we had our on-scene departure checklist, we had like, you know, cardiac arrest and trauma, but we'd all, we'd all the surgical supplies, we had anesthetics, we had all these things. And uh, we're like, uh, and I was, we were still super nervous. We're like, I don't think, because when we started out for the first year, there was just two nurses and me. It's like, I was on call every day and they would alternate one or one of, you know, Lob or Karen, two Bhutanese nurses that I loved. You know, my, the, the first two that I trained. And so uh, the Ministry of Health asked us, hey, are you guys ready to go? And I thought to myself, oh, my God, we are not ready. But we're almost ready, so we're ready. So, yeah, we're ready to go. You know, let's, let's do this. We're, we're, we're totally ready to go. Let's, let's fly. Uh, and so the very next day, we received a call in the late evening of a woman who water buffalo are domesticated animals in this part of the world. And this was a, a, a bunch of them that were not domesticated. They were wild. And so they were watering through field. This woman came out and she tried to switch them with a, you know, get out of my fields. And they were wild. So they one turn, hooked her, you know, lifted her up and threw her three or four meters, tore a trunk out of her, her right hemithorax. So she went into distress immediately. She's got a sucking chest wound and she's lost a bit of blood and she's got big pneumothorax and she feels terrible. And so at this point, there was a, um, a mechanism by which rural health attendants, you know, like some of these nurses or um, health aides could call the capital for medical advice from a specialist who then tell them over the phone, hey, just try to do these things. And this place is like, you know, hours from the nearest road point. So there's no, it's in Southern Bhutan, there's no road, no road access, you know. So that he calls and the dispatcher's like, oh, this is a priority one call for our helicopter rescue team. He's like, we have a helicopter rescue team? And he's like, we, yes, we do. They will send them down. So we go to the air and we get blocked by all these storms and we turn around and land. 
and then it's civic twilight and we can't fly. So, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is great. You know, our very first case and she's going to die before we get there. And then no one's going to let us operate anymore. Probably what's the whole point? What's the point of you doing this? Um, so my friend, Lob, who is, was the, my dearest friend, who's the nurse that was working with me, got on the phone and in Zonka, which is the national language of Bhutan, uh, asked the, um, asked the health attendant to put the phone to the woman's ear. And he did. And then Lob said to her some words in Bhutanese. I asked, you know, he handed the phone back to me. I said, all right, we'll see you tomorrow. And he said, what did I ask him? What did you say to her? And he said, I told her that we loved her. I said, fight for life, and we'll see you in the morning. And I was like, oh, well, okay, heavy words. Let's hope she, let's hope she follows them. So we, we had a, a sleepless night of about six, seven hours waiting for the sun to rise, just, you know, for civic twilight to begin again before sunrise so we could fly. So the next morning comes, and here we are at 5 a.m., and we call, and she's still alive. Her family has dragged her overnight on a tarp hours through the woods to a place where they thought we could land more safely. So we take to the air and we fly down there. Flight takes like maybe 20 minutes, nothing. We land and there's a whole crowd of villagers there. And, you know, we run up with our equipment and she looks up at us. She looks up at me. She looks up at Lob and then surrounded by all this family and other villagers she stops breathing. She goes into a rest right there, you know, but like we were right there. So I was like, uh, all right, Lop, I think uh, traumatic cardiac arrest is box number two. So let's just crack that open. So we opened up both sides of her chest, evacuated the air. Um, she was in PEA arrest. We got her heart started again, you know, so intubated her, bagged her worked, you know, had a bit of a rocky flight back to the capital. Um, she was excavated three days later. She walked out of the hospital by the end of the week. Wow. Did you guys carry blood or how did you resuscitate her? So we do carry blood. So what's so crazy is that like I, in founding this service, I read as much as I could about the trials and tribulations of all the other services all around the world. So I started working on the right for us to carry uh, lyophilized plasma and PRBCs and FFP, depending on, um, well before the service had been created. So I started on like all the legal work and working with the head of the blood bank and had all this stuff and, you know, got myself to be on the committees to, to write all the national protocols for the use of, of blood outside the hospital and so on. So, I created, you know, very fortunately, because I had learned about other services struggling, like as we were working to build this team and advancing it through the government, I was also kind of working on the, on the sidelines to get us permissions to use all the surgical equipment, anesthetics, whatever I needed at the same time. So that when we started, you know, not that case, but within say two weeks, we were carrying blood products. Yeah, which is crazy because I started it seven months before knowing that if we started and I, I didn't know that we were going to succeed, but I was like, if we do succeed, I want to make sure that we, nothing's stopping us. So it's like we started and then like mechanical ventilation, blood products and so on. Um, yeah. I think uh, 
the other thing that stood out to me about that case is uh you described so well that she managed through the li- the night she was clinging onto life and then you get there and she looks at you and then arrests we've seen it like it yeah we've all it happens like I lose that sympathetic drive and they're like, Oh, thank God I'm saved. I'm safe. These people are going to help me. And then, the exactly. That's exactly what happened. It's pretty classic. Now in her case, we're really lucky because all she needed was, you know, two chest tubes and, you know, one shock to her chest and she was fine. That's pretty much what all she needed. So we were real lucky, but you know, if it had been, if she decided that she tired out like 10 minutes beforehand, we would look real bad. Yeah, you know we're yeah. real lucky. So it was like it's better to be lucky than good. We're real lucky, yeah. but it was also a great case. A uh, and it was also, yeah, in that first month of we uh, we saved ten lives that first month. Wow. We cr- just lots of crazy cases. We had a compressed gas cylinder explosion that like took off someone's skull, and I remember this guy was like awake, and we were like you know putting the skull fragment back on like cleaning it off, putting it back on so they could reuse it and like gently sewing a skull. Hey, like we like, we crazy cases that first no one. No need to decompress that one. No, no, he was self decompressed. It was, it was, yeah. it was, it was wild. Um, you know, wow. we, had, we had one bear attack. Um, yeah. All sorts of wild stuff. Yeah. Great. That, that was a really great, great case to end on. I think, um, I could sit and talk to you for hours about all of this. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. No, oh, unfortunately, I've got to go to work. So um, <laughs> I better I better bring it to a close there. So um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time, Charlie. We've managed to nail, nail you down. I know you're you're off working on all over exciting different parts of the world, but um, really, really value your experiences, your insight, your learning, and I've taken a, a lot away from this. Um, so yeah, well, it's a pr- it's a privilege. Well, I hope I hope we have a chance to to work again sometime soon. All you guys with the uh, well, extreme medicine, do some pretty cool stuff yourself. So, we'd love it. Um, I know you've spoken at the conference before. Are you planning to come this year? Um, I don't even know when it is or what I'll be doing. So, oh, who knows? It's a good a chance for a plug. So, it's a November second weekend of November this year in Edinburgh. So, um, yeah, if you if you come in, it would be great to see you there. All right, lovely. Hey, great talking to you. And you. Cheers. Thanks very much, Charlie. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again. 